0: Section 5 of Dogmatic Theology, Soteriology, by William G.T. Shedd. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Vicarious Atonement, Part 4 Having considered the nature and value of Christ's atonement, we are prepared to consider its extent. Some controversy would have been avoided upon this subject had there always been a distinct understanding as to the meaning of words. We shall therefore first of all consider this point. The term extent has two senses in English usage. A. It has a passive meaning and is equivalent to value. The extent of a man's farm means the number of acres which it contains. The extent of a man's resources denotes the amount of property which he owns. In this signification of the word, the extent of Christ's atonement would be the intrinsic and real value of it for purposes of judicial satisfaction. In this use of the term, all parties who hold the atonement in any evangelical meaning would concede that the extent of the atonement is unlimited. Christ's death is sufficient in value to satisfy eternal justice for the sins of all mankind. If this were the only meaning of extent, we should not be called upon to discuss it any further, for all that has been said under the head of the nature and value of the atonement would answer the question, what is the extent of the atonement? Being an infinite atonement, it has an infinite value. B. The word has an active signification. It denotes the act of extending. The extent of the atonement in this sense means its personal application to individuals by the Holy Spirit. The extent is now the intent. The question, what is the extent of the atonement, now means, to whom is the atonement effectually extended? The inquiry now is not, What is the value of the atonement, but to whom does God purpose to apply its benefits? The active signification is the earlier meaning of the word in English literature. The following are a few out of many instances in which extent means extending or putting to use. Let my officers of such a nature make an extent, levy, upon his house and lands. Shakespeare, as you like it, Act 3, Scene 1. Let thy fair wisdom, not thy passion, sway In this uncivil and unjust extent Attack against thy peace. Shakespeare, Twelfth Night, Act Four, Scene One. But both his hands, most filthy feculent, Above the water were on high extent, Extended, and feigned to wash themselves incessantly, Yet nothing cleaner were they for such intent. Spencer, Fairy Queen, Act 2, scene 7. Second him, in his dishonest practices, but when this manner is extended, applied, to my use, you'll speak in an humble way and sue for favour. Massinger, new way to pay old debts. Act 4, scene 1. The rule of Solon concerning the territory of Athens is not extendable, applicable unto all, allowing the distance of six foot unto common trees and nine for the fig and olive. Brown, Cyrus's garden, four. The following are examples of the use of the term in the active signification in the older theologians and doctrinal statements. The rest of mankind God was pleased according to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, whereby he extendeth or withholdeth mercy as he pleaseth to pass by. Westminster Confession, three, seven. According to the unsearchable counsel of his own will, God extendeth or withholdeth favour as he pleaseth. Larger Catechism, 13. In these passages, to extend mercy means to effectually apply Christ's redemption, not merely to offer it. Because in the latter sense, God does not withhold mercy from any man. Is grace impaired in its extent? We affirm it to be extended to everyone that is or was or ever shall be delivered from the pit. Owen, against universal redemption, four seven. Here, to extend grace is to actually save the soul by effectual calling. In modern English, the term extent is so generally employed in the passive signification of value that the active signification has become virtually obsolete and requires explanation. Writers upon the extent of the atonement have sometimes neglected to consider the history of the word and misunderstanding has arisen between disputants who were really in agreement with each other accordingly in answering the question as to the extent of christ's atonement it must first be settled whether extent means its intended application or its intrinsic value whether the active or the passive signification of the word is in the mind of the inquirer If the word means value, then the atonement is unlimited. If it means extending, that is applying, then the atonement is limited. The dispute also turns upon the meaning of the preposition for. One theologian asserts that Christ died for all men, and another denies that Christ died for all men. There may be a difference between the two that is reconcilable, and there may be an irreconcilable difference. The preposition for denotes an intention of some kind. If, in the case under consideration, the intention is understood to be the purpose on the part of God, both to offer and apply the atonement by working faith and repentance in the sinner's heart, by the operation of the Holy Spirit, then he who affirms that Christ died for all men is in error, and he who denies that Christ died for all men holds the truth. These two parties are irreconcilable. But he who asserts that Christ died for all men may understand the intention signified by the preposition to be the purpose on the part of God only to offer the atonement, leaving it to the sinner whether it shall be appropriated through faith and repentance. The intention in this latter case does not include so much as in the former, and the preposition is narrower in meaning. When the word for is thus defined, the difference between the two parties is reconcilable. The latter means by for, intended for offer or publication, the former means intended for application. Again, the preposition for is sometimes understood to denote not intention, but value or sufficiency. To say that Christ died for all men then means that his death is sufficient to expiate the guilt of all men. Here again, the difference is possibly reconcilable between the parties. The one who denies that Christ died for all men takes for in the sense of intention to effectually apply. The other who affirms that Christ died for all men takes for in the sense of value as to the question which is the most proper use of the word for it is plain that it more naturally conveys the notion of intention than of sufficiency or value if it be said to a person this money is for you he does not understand merely that it is sufficient in value to pay his debt but that it actually inures to his benefit in paying it In the scripture statement that Christ gave himself a ransom for all, 1 Timothy 2.6, if the word for be made to denote value, so that the text reads, Christ gave himself a ransom sufficient for all, a circumlocution is introduced. The preposition for does not express the idea of sufficiency or value directly, but through an explanation, but it expresses the idea of intention immediately and without circumlocution. And this agrees better with the term ransom, which denotes subjective redemption rather than objective satisfaction. This remark applies to such a text as that Christ tasted death for every man, Hebrews 2.9, which is explained by many sons in verse 10. If we interpolate and say that Christ tasted a death that is sufficient for every man, we indeed state a truth, but we inject into the preposition for a larger meaning than accords with the strictly idiomatic use of it. The distinction between the sufficiency of the atonement and its extent, in the sense of intent or effectual application, is an old and well-established one. It is concisely expressed in the dictum that Christ died sufficienter pro omnibus sed efficaciter tantum pro electis. The following extracts from Owen illustrated. It was the purpose and intention of God that his Son should offer a sacrifice of infinite worth, value and dignity, sufficient in itself for the redeeming of all and every man, if it had pleased the Lord to employ it for that purpose, yea, and of other worlds also, if the Lord should freely make them and would redeem them. Sufficient, we say then, was the sacrifice of Christ for the redemption of the whole world and for the expiation of all the sins of all and every man in the world. This is its own true internal perfection and sufficiency. That it should be applied unto all, made a price for them, and become beneficial to them, according to the worth that is in it, is external to it, doth not arise from it, but merely depends upon the intention and will of God. It was in itself of infinite value and sufficiency, to have been made a price to have bought and purchased all and every man in the world. That it did formerly become a price for any is solely to be ascribed to the purpose of God, intending their purchase and redemption by it, The intention of the offerer and acceptor of the sacrifice, that it should be for such, some, or any, is that which gives the formality of a price unto it. This is external to the sacrifice. But the value and fitness of it, to be made a price, ariseth from its own internal sufficiency. In respect to such phraseology as a ransom price for all... 1 Timothy 2.6, Owen remarks that it must be understood to mean that Christ's blood was sufficient to be made a ransom for all, to be made a price for all, but that the terms ransom and ransom price more properly denote the application than the value of Christ's sacrifice. He adds that the expression to die for any person holds out the intention of our Saviour in the laying down of the price to be their Redeemer. Atonement must be distinguished from redemption. The latter term includes the application of the atonement. It is the term redemption, not atonement, which is found in those statements that speak of the work of Christ as limited by the decree of election. In the Westminster Confession, eight, 8 it is said that, To all those whom Christ hath purchased redemption, he doth certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same. In chapter eight five. It is stated that the Lord Jesus hath purchased not only reconciliation but an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father hath given unto him. Since redemption includes reconciliation with God and inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, it implies something subjective in the soul, an appropriation by faith of the benefits of Christ's objective work of atonement. Reconciliation and inheritance of heaven are elements and parts of redemption and are limited to those who have believed, and those who have believed are those who have been called and chosen. Ephesians 2.9, Faith is the gift of God. 1 Corinthians 3.5, Ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. Acts 3.48, As many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Accordingly, the scripture limits redemption as contradistinguished from atonement to the church. Christ makes reconciliation for the sins of his people, Hebrews twelve seventeen. His work is called the Redemption of the Purchased Possession, Ephesians 1 fourteen. He is the mediator of the New Testament, that by means of his death they which are called might receive an eternal inheritance, Hebrews nine fifteen. He hath visited and redeemed his people, Luke 168. David, addressing Jehovah, says, Remember thy congregation which thou hast purchased of old, the rod of thine inheritance which thou hast redeemed. Psalm seventy four two. The elders of Ephesus are commanded to feed the church of God which he hath purchased by his own blood. Acts twenty twenty eight. He sent redemption unto his people. Psalm three nine. O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed thee. Isaiah forty three one. He shall save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. Christ is the saviour of his body, the church, Ephesians 5.23. He said, Surely they are my people. So he was their saviour, Isaiah 63.8. I will save my people from the east country and from the west country, Zechariah 8.7. See the Old Testament passages in which Jehovah is called the saviour of Israel and the New Testament passages in which God is called our saviour, that is, of the church. Since redemption implies the application of Christ's atonement, Universal or unlimited redemption cannot logically be affirmed by any who hold that faith is wholly the gift of God, and that saving faith is bestowed solely by election. The use of the term redemption, consequently, is attended with less ambiguity than that of atonement, and it is the term most commonly employed in controversial theology. Footnote. Owen, in his treatise against Arminianism, presents... Arguments Against Universal Redemption End footnote. Atonement is unlimited and redemption is limited. This statement includes all the scripture texts, those which assert that Christ died for all men and those which assert that he died for his people. He who asserts unlimited atonement and limited redemption cannot well be misconceived. He is understood to hold that the sacrifice of Christ is unlimited in its value, sufficiency and publication, but limited in its effectual application. But he who asserts unlimited atonement and denies limited redemption might be understood to hold either of three views. One, the doctrine of the universalist, that Christ's atonement per se saves all mankind. Or two, the doctrine of the Arminian, that personal faith in Christ's atonement is necessary to salvation, but that faith depends partly upon the operation of the Holy Spirit and partly upon the decision of the sinful will or three the doctrine of the school of Saumur hypothetic universalism that personal faith in christ's atonement in the first arrangement of God depended in part upon the decision of the sinful will but since this failed by a second arrangement it now depends wholly upon the work of the Spirit according to the purpose of election The tenet of limited redemption rests upon the tenet of election, and the tenet of election rests upon the tenet of the sinner's bondage and inability. Soteriology here runs back to theology, and theology runs back to anthropology. Everything in the series finally recurs to the state and condition of fallen man. The answer to the question, how is the atonement of Christ savingly appropriated, depends upon the answer to the question, how much efficient power is there in the sinful will to savingly trust in it? If the answer be that there is efficient power, either wholly or in part, in the sinful will itself to believe, then faith is either wholly or in part from the sinner himself and is not wholly the gift of God, which is contrary to Ephesians 2.8 and justification does not depend wholly upon electing grace, which is contrary to 1 Peter 1.2, and redemption is not limited. But if the answer be that there is not efficient power in the sinful will itself, either wholly or in part, to savingly believe, then faith is wholly the gift of God, is wholly dependent upon his electing grace, and redemption is limited by election, as is taught in 1 Corinthians 5.3, who then is Paul and who is Apollos, by whom ye believed, even as the Lord gave to every man. And in Romans 9.16, It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy. The difference between the Calvinist and the Arminian appears at this point. Both are evangelical in affirming that salvation is solely by faith in Christ's atoning blood. This differentiates him from the legal Socinian, who denies the doctrine of vicarious atonement and founds salvation from condemnation on personal character and good works. But they differ regarding the origin of faith. The Calvinist maintains that faith is wholly from God, being one of the effects of regeneration. The Arminian, that it is partly from God and partly from man. The Calvinist asserts that a sinner is unconditionally elected to the act of faith, and that the Holy Spirit in regeneration inclines and enables him to the act, without cooperation and assistance from him. The Arminian asserts that a sinner is conditionally elected to the act of faith, and that the Holy Spirit works faith in him, with some assistance and cooperation from him. This cooperation consists in ceasing to resist and yielding to the operation of the Spirit. In this case, the Holy Spirit does not overcome a totally averse and resisting will, which is the Calvinistic view, but he influences a partially inclining will. The Calvinist contends that unconditional election and total inability agree best with the scripture representations, and that the Arminian really adopts them when he sings with Charles Wesley, Other refuge have I none, hangs my helpless soul on thee. Conditional election is inconsistent with the biblical texts which describe God as independent and sovereign in bestowing faith and salvation. It is no sufficient reply to say that plenary ability to appropriate the atonement of Christ is not attributed to the fallen soul, but only a partial ability that it is not contended that sinful man can exercise faith in the atonement without any aid at all from God, but only that he can and must contribute a certain degree of voluntary power, which, if united with that of God the Spirit, will produce faith, and that the exercise of this is the condition of election. This position of partial ability or synergism comes to the same result with that of plenary ability, so far as the divine independence and sovereignty are concerned. For it is this decision of the sinner to contribute his quota, to do his part in the transaction, which conditions the result. It is indeed true upon this theory that if God does not assist, the act of faith is impossible. But it is equally true that if the sinner does not assist, the act of faith is impossible. Neither party alone and by himself can originate faith in Christ's atonement. God is as dependent in this respect as man. In this case, therefore, it cannot be said that faith depends wholly upon the divine purpose, or that redemption is regulated and limited by election. The middle theory of partial ability and conditional election is found in the Greek anthropology and the semi-Pelagian fathers generally, and is opposed by Calvin, as follows. The proposition of Paul It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, but of God that showeth mercy, is not to be understood in the sense of those who divide saving power between the grace of God and the will and exertion of man, who indeed say that human desires and endeavours have no efficacy of themselves unless they are rendered successful by the grace of God, but also maintain that with the assistance of his blessing, these things have their share in procuring salvation. To refute their views, I prefer Augustine's words to my own. If the Apostle only meant that it is not of him that wills, or of him that runs, without the assistance of the merciful Lord, we may retort the converse proposition that it is not of God's mercy alone without the assistance of man's willing and running. But it is certain that the Apostle ascribes everything to the Lord's mercy, and leaves nothing to our wills or exertions. Again, Calvin marks the difference between Augustine and Chrysostom in the following terms. Let us not hesitate to say with Augustine that God could convert to good the will of all the wicked, because he is omnipotent. Why then does he not? Because he would not. Why he would not remains with himself, for we ought not to aim at more wisdom than becomes us. That would be much better than adopting the evasion of Chrysostom, that God draws those who are willing and who stretch out their hands for his aid, so that the difference may not appear to consist in the decree of God, but in the will of man. Luther took the same ground with Calvin. Some allege that the Holy Spirit works not in those that resist him, but only in such as are willing and give consent thereto, whence it follows that a free will is a cause and helper of faith, and that consequently the Holy Ghost does not alone work through the word, but that our will does something therein. But I say it is not so. The will of man works nothing at all in his conversion and justification non est efficiens causa justificationis sed materialis tantum. It is the matter on which the Holy Ghost works, as a potter makes a pot out of clay, equally in those that resist and are averse, as in St. Paul. But after the Holy Ghost has wrought in the wills of such resistance, then he also manages that the will be consenting thereunto. Table talk of free will. In saying that Christ's atonement is limited in its application and that redemption is particular, not universal, it is meant that the number of persons to whom it is effectually applied is a fixed and definite number. The notion of definiteness, not of smallness, is intended. In common speech, if anything is limited, it is little and insignificant in amount. This is not the idea when the redemptive work of Christ is denominated a limited work. The circle of election and redemption must indeed be a circumference, but not necessarily a small one. No man is redeemed outside of the circle, all the sheep must be within the fold, but the circle is that of the heavens, not of the earth. The fold is that of the great shepherd, not that of an under-shepherd. The biblical representation is to this effect. Matthew 6.13, Thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory. 1 Corinthians 15.25, Christ must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. Psalm one hundred and three twenty one The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all Revelation twenty one three The Tabernacle of God is with men and they shall be his people. Revelation fourteen six the angel, having the everlasting gospel to preach to every nation kindred and tongue. Revelation nineteen six, the voice of a great multitude, and as the voice of many waters. Revelation twenty one sixteen, the new Jerusalem lieth four square, and the length is as large as the breadth. Romans 5.20, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound. Psalm 68.17, the chariots of God are twenty thousand, even thousands upon thousands. Although Christ's atonement in the discussion of its value and sufficiency can be separated from the intention to apply it, yet in the divine mind and decree the two things are inseparable. The atonement and its application are parts of one covenant of redemption between the Father and Son. The sacrifice of Christ is offered with the intention that it shall actually be successful in saving human souls from death. It is not rational to suppose that God the Father merely determined that God the Son should die for the sin of the world, leaving it wholly or in part to the sinful world to determine all the rest of this stupendous transaction, leaving it wholly or in part to the sinful world to decide how many or how few this death should actually save. Neither is it rational to suppose that the Son of God would lay down his life upon such a peradventure. For it might be that not a single human soul would trust in his sacrifice, and in this case he would have died in vain. On the contrary, it is most rational to suppose that in the covenant between the Father and Son, the making of an atonement was inseparably connected with the purpose to apply it. The purpose namely to accompany the atoning work of the Son with the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. The Divine Father, in giving the Divine Son as a sacrifice for sin, simultaneously determined that this sacrifice should be appropriated through faith by a definite number of the human family, so that it might be said that Christ died for this number with the distinct intention that they should be personally saved by this death. This is taught in Scripture. The Good Shepherd layeth down his life for the sheep. John 10.15 Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. John 15.13 being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for that nation, and not for that nation only, but that also he should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. John eleven fifty one and fifty two Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. Ephesians five twenty five. The annunciation to Joseph respecting the miraculous conception described the Saviour as one who should save his people from their sins. Matthew one twenty one. Furthermore, in accordance with this fact of an intention to apply the atonement at the time when the atonement is provided, we find that believers are said to have been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world, Ephesians 1.4, that they have been given to Christ by the Father, John 10.29, that Christ knows them as so given, John 10.27, that he claims them as his sheep before they have actually believed, and even before they have been born, saying, other sheep I have, which are not of this fold, them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one flock, pomen, and one shepherd John ten sixteen and when Paul was at Corinth, Christ encouraged his apostle to continue his labours, notwithstanding that little success, had thus far attended them by saying, "I have much people in this city acts eighteen nine That the atonement in the mind of God was inseparable from his purpose to apply it to individuals is proved. a. By the fact that atonement in and by itself, separate from faith, saves no soul. Christ might have died precisely as he did, but if no one believed in him, he would have died in vain. Hence it is said that God hath set forth Christ to be a propitiation through faith in his blood. Romans 3.25 It is only when the death of Christ has been actually confided in as an atonement that it is completely set forth as God's propitiation for sin. In like manner, Christ is said to have been delivered for our offenses and raised again for our justification. Romans 4.25 If Christ had not risen from the dead, he could not have been believed in. A dead and buried Christ could not have been an object of personal trust and confidence. Consequently, although it was the suffering and death of Christ, and not his resurrection and exaltation, that properly constitutes the atoning sacrifice, yet this sacrifice in itself, and apart from its vital appropriation, is useless. In order, therefore, to man's justification, Christ must not only be delivered to death for offences, but raised again from death, so that he might be an object of faith." It cannot be said, says Owen, that Christ's satisfaction was made in such a way as to render it uncertain whether it should save or not. Such an arrangement might be just in pecuniary payments. A man may lay down a sum of money for the discharge of another on such a condition as may never be fulfilled. For on the failure of the condition his money may and ought to be returned to him, whereupon he hath received no injury or damage But in penal suffering for crime and sin there can be no righteous arrangement that shall make the event and efficacy of it to depend on a condition absolutely uncertain and which may not be fulfilled. For if the condition fail, no recompense can be made to him that hath suffered. Wherefore, the application of the satisfaction of Christ unto them for whom it was made is sure and steadfast in the purpose of God. b. If in the mind of God the death of Christ was separate from the intention to apply it, then it would be as true that Christ died for lost angels as for lost men, because his atonement, being infinite, is sufficient in value to atone for their sin as well as that of mankind. When it is said that Christ died for the sin of the world, it is implied that he did not die for any sin but that of man. The offer of Christ's atonement is confined to the human race and not made to the angelic world. Now, as the divine intention accompanies the providing of an atonement in respect to the difference between angels and men, so it accompanies the application of the atonement in respect to the difference between elect and non-elect men. As the atonement of Christ is not intended to be offered to the angels, though it is sufficient for them, so it is not intended to be applied to non-elect men, though it is sufficient for them. C. If, in the mind of God, the purpose that Christ should die had not been accompanied with the purpose that his death should be effective for individuals, the former purpose would have been an unproductive and useless one. It would have accomplished nothing because of man's unbelief and rejection of the gospel offer. But no purpose of God is unproductive and useless. d. The analogy of the typical atonement under the Mosaic economy shows that Christ's atonement is intended for application only to believers. The lamb offered by the officiating priest was offered for the particular person who brought it to the priest to be offered. Each man had his own lamb, and there was no lamb that belonged to no one in particular, but to every one indiscriminately. E. The atoning work of Christ, in its intended application, is no wider than his intercessory work. He pleads the merit of his death for those to whom the Father purposed to impute it, and only for those... I pray not for the world but for them which thou hast given me. John seventeen nine. This was Christ's intercessory prayer. He here teaches that he does not discharge the particular office of intercessor for the non elect, the world, as distinguished from those whom the Father had given him. It is logical therefore to conclude that he does not discharge the particular office of priest for them. There are biblical passages which are cited to teach unlimited redemption. Hebrews 2.9, Christ tasted death for every man. 1 John 2.2, 2, Christ is the propitiation not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. 1 Timothy 2.6, Christ gave himself a ransom for all. John 1.29, the Lamb of God which taketh away the sins of the world. John 3.16 and 17, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Respecting this class of passages, the following particulars are to be noticed. 1. Scripture must be explained in harmony with Scripture. Texts that speak of the universal reference of Christ's death must therefore be interpreted in such a way as not to exclude its special reference. 1 Timothy 4.10. God is the Saviour of all men, especially of those that believe. Hebrews 2.17. Christ makes reconciliation for the sins of His people. Ephesians 5.23. Christ is the Saviour of His body, the Church. Luke one sixty eight Christ hath visited and redeemed his people. Matthew 20.28, 20, Christ gives his life a ransom for many. Matthew one twenty one Jesus shall save his people from their sins. Psalm 74.2, 111.9, Isaiah 63.8, Matthew 26.28, Hebrews 9.28. 2. The word world in scripture frequently denotes a part of the world viewed as a collective whole and having a distinctive character as we speak of the scientific or the religious world a sometimes it is the world of believers the church examples of this use are john 6:33 and 51 the bread of god is he which giveth life to the world of believers romans 4:13 abraham is the heir of the world the redeemed romans 11:12 if the fall of them be the riches of the world romans eleven fifteen if the casting away of them be the reconciling of the world in these texts church could be substituted for world b sometimes the word world denotes the contrary of the church psalm seven fourteen men of the world John 110 the world knew him not john seven seven the world cannot hate you but me it hateth john fourteen seventeen twenty two and twenty seven 15, 18 and 19, 16, 20 and 33, 17,9. I pray not for the world. John 17:14, 16 and 25. 1 Corinthians 2:12, 1 John 2, 15-17, 4, 5, 5, 5,4. C: Sometimes the term "world" means all mankind in distinction from the Jews. Matthew 26:13: "The gospel shall be preached in the whole world." Matthew 13:38, "The field is the world. John 3.16, God so loved the world. 1 Corinthians 1.21, By wisdom the world knew not God. 2 Corinthians 5.19, Reconcile the world unto himself. 1 John 2.2, Propitiation for the sins of the whole world. These texts teach that redemption is intended for all races, classes and ages of men. Similarly, the word all sometimes has a restricted signification, denoting all of a particular class. 1 Corinthians 15.22 As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. The all in Adam is a larger aggregate than the all in Christ because Scripture teaches that all men without exception are the children of Adam and that not all without exception are believers in Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.14 If one died for all, then all died with that one. The all here denotes the body of believers because it is described as the living. Uzontos Verse 15. Romans 5.18. As the judgment came upon all men to condemnation, even so the free gift came upon all men unto justification. The all, in one instance, is described, verse 17, as receiving abundance of grace, but not in the other. Footnote. As a specimen of exegesis that throws out the qualifying words and explanatory statements of the author, consider the following from Pharaoh The word all is the governing word in the epistle to the Romans. All, for whatever may be the modifications which may be thought necessary, St. Paul does not himself make them. All are equally guilty. All are equally redeemed. All have been temporarily rejected. All shall be ultimately received. All shall be finally brought into living harmony with that God who is above all and through all and in all. Ephesians 4.6 End quote. The words of St. Paul in Ephesians 4.6 are, God who is in you all, the reference being to believers. End footnote. The passage 1 Corinthians 8.11, Shall the weaker brother perish for whom Christ died? And also Hebrews 6.4-10 and 10.26-30 10, is a supposition for the sake of argument of something that does not and cannot happen, like 1 Corinthians 13.1-3, Galatians 1.8. The influence and natural tendency of the conduct spoken of is to spiritual death. It is not said that the actual result will be the death of the weaker brother. On the contrary, it is said that God shall hold him up, Romans 14.4. In the text 2 Peter 2.1, denying the Lord that bought them, the false teachers are described according to their own profession, not as they are in the eye of God. They claim to have been bought by the blood of Christ, and yet, by their damnable heresies, nullify the atonement. Turreton explains the purchase in this case as redemption from the errors of paganism. See verse 20, escape the pollutions of the world. Only the outward call is meant. Turreton defends this by the use in the passage of spotes instead of sotera, and of agorazin instead of lutrosthe, In 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The will is that of decree and the reference is to believers only. The Greek shows this, me volomenos dinas apoleste, not purposing that any of us should perish. The preceding clause, long-suffering to usward," isemas, shows that dinas refers to God's children. The true rendering of is metanuan, Choresi is, should go on to repentance, metanuan, here denoting the process of sanctification or renewing, Ephesians 4.23, and choresi, a progressive motion or advance, as in Matthew 15.17, 19.12. The passage, Isaiah 5.4, what could have been done more unto my vineyard does not teach that God could not realize his desire that all men should turn and live. It is not the idea of power, but of patience and long-suffering that is contained in this text. Calvin and Gnesius explain, What more was there to be done, or was I bound to do? Alexander in Loco The question arises, if the atonement of Christ is not intended to be universally applied, why should it be universally offered? The gospel offer is to be made to every man because, one, it is the divine command. Matthew 16:5). God has forbidden his ministers to accept any man in the offer. Two, no offer of the atonement is possible but a universal offer. In order to be offered at all, Christ's sacrifice must be offered indiscriminately. A limited offer of the atonement to the elect only would require a revelation from God informing the preacher who they are. As there is no such revelation, and the herald is in ignorance on this point, he cannot offer the gospel to some and refuse it to others. In this state of things, there is no alternative but to preach Christ to everybody or to nobody. 3. The atonement is sufficient in value to expiate the sin of all men indiscriminately, and this fact should be stated because it is a fact. There are no claims of justice not yet satisfied. There is no sin of man for which an infinite atonement has not been provided all things are now ready. Therefore the call to come is universal. It is plain that the offer of the atonement should be regulated by its intrinsic nature and sufficiency, not by the obstacles that prevent its efficacy. The extent to which a medicine is offered is not limited by the number of persons favorably disposed to buy it and use it. Its adaptation to disease is the sole consideration in selling it, and consequently it is offered to everybody." 4. God opposes no obstacle to the efficacy of the atonement in the instance of the non-elect. a. He exerts no direct efficiency to prevent the non-elect from trusting in the atonement. The decree of reprobation is permissive. God leaves the non-elect to do as he likes. b. There is no compulsion from the external circumstances in which the providence of God has placed the non-elect. On the contrary, the outward circumstances, especially in Christendom, favour, instead of hindering, trust in Christ's atonement. And so, in a less degree, do the outward circumstances in heathendom. The goodness, forbearance, and long-suffering of God tend to lead to repentance. Romans 2.4, Acts 14.17, 17.26-30 17, C. The special grace which God bestows upon the elect does not prevent the non-elect from believing, neither does it render faith any more difficult for him. The non-elect receives common grace, and common grace would incline the human will if it were not defeated by the human will. If the sinner should make no hostile opposition, common grace would be equivalent to saving grace. To say that common grace, if not resisted by the sinner, would be equivalent to regenerating grace is not the same as to say that common grace, if assisted by the sinner, would be equivalent to regenerating grace. In the first instance, God would be the sole author of regeneration. In the second, he would not be. End footnote. Acts seven fifty one. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Two Timothy three eight. As Janus and Jumbres withstood Moses, so do these also withstand the truth. See Howes remarks on common grace. Oracles two two. Five. The atonement of Christ is to be offered indiscriminately because God desires that every man would believe in it. God says Turretin delights in the conversion and eternal life of the sinner as a thing pleasing in itself and congruous with His infinitely compassionate nature, and therefore demands from man as a duty due from him, Danquam officium debitum, to turn if he would live. Substitute in this passage faith and repentance for conversion and eternal life, and it is equally true. It is the divine delight in faith and repentance and the divine desire for its exercise that warrants the offer of the benefits of Christ's atonement to the non-elect. Plainly, the offer of the atonement ought to be regulated by the divine desire and not by the aversion of the non-elect. God, in offering his own atonement, should be guided by his own feeling and not by that of sinful man. Because the non-elect does not take delight in faith and repentance, is surely no reason why God, who does take delight in it, should be debarred from saying to him, Turn ye, turn ye, for why will ye die? May not God express his sincere feeling and desire to any except those who are in sympathy with him and have the same species of feeling? if a man has a kind and compassionate nature it is unreasonable to require that he suppress its promptings in case he sees a proud and surly person who is unwilling to accept a gift the benevolent nature is unlimited in its desire it wishes well-being to everybody and hence its offers are universal they may be made to a churlish and ill-natured man and be rejected but they are good and kind offers nevertheless and they are none the less sincere though they accomplish nothing the universal offer of the benefits of Christ's atonement springs out of God's will of complacency. Ezekiel 33.11, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his evil way and live. God may properly call upon the non-elect to do a thing that God delights in simply because he does delight in it. The divine desire is not altered by the divine decree of, of preterition. Though God decides not to overcome by special grace the obstinate aversion which resists common grace, yet his delight in faith and repentance remains the same. His desire for the sinner's faith and repentance is not diminished in the least by the resistance which it meets from the non-elect, nor by the fact that for reasons sufficient he does not decide to overcome this resistance. 6. It is the non-elect himself, not God, who prevents the efficacy of the atonement. For the real reason of the inefficacy of Christ's blood is impenitence and unbelief. Consequently, the author of impenitence and unbelief is the author of limited redemption. God is not the cause of a sinner's impenitence and unbelief merely because he does not overcome his impenitence and unbelief. If a man flings himself into the water and drowns, a spectator upon the bank cannot be called the cause of that man's death. Non-prevention is not causation. The efficient and responsible cause of the suicide is the suicide's free will. In like manner, the non-elect himself, by his impenitence and unbelief, is the responsible cause of the inefficacy of Christ's expiation. God is blameless in respect to the limitation of redemption. Man is guilty in respect to it. God is only the indirect and occasional cause of it. Man is the immediate and efficient cause of it. This being the state of the case, there is nothing self-contradictory in the universal offer of the atonement upon the part of God. If either of the following suppositions were true, it would be fatal to the universal offer. a. If at the time of offering Christ's atonement, God was actively preventing the non-elect from believing, the offer would be inconsistent. b. If at the time of offering it, God were working upon the will of the non-elect to strengthen his aversion to the atonement, the offer would be inconsistent see if god were the efficient author of that apostasy and sinfulness which enslaves the human will and renders it unable to believe in christ without special grace then the offer of the atonement unaccompanied with the offer of special grace would be inconsistent but none of these suppositions are true 7. The offer of the atonement is universal, because when God calls upon men universally to believe, he does not call upon them to believe that they are elected, or that Christ died for them in particular. He calls upon them to believe that Christ died for sin, for sinners, for the world, that there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved, that the blood of Christ cleanseth from all sin, and that there is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. The atonement is not offered to an individual either as an elect man or as a non-elect man, but as a man and a sinner simply. Men are commanded to believe in the sufficiency of the atonement, not in its predestinated application to themselves as individuals. The belief that Christ died for the individual himself is the assurance of faith, and is more than saving faith. It is the end, not the beginning, of the process of salvation. God does not demand assurance of faith as the first act of faith. Assurance of grace and salvation, not being of the essence of faith, true believers may wait long before they obtain it. Larger Catechism 81. In whom, after ye believed, ye were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Ephesians 1.13. 8. The atonement is to be offered to all, because the preacher is to hope and expect from God the best and not the worst for every man. He is consequently to expect the election of his hearer rather than his reprobation. The fact of the external call favours election, not reprobation. The external call embraces the following particulars. a. Hearing the word. b. Religious education by parents and friends. c. Common grace experienced in conviction of sin, fear of death and judgment, general anxiety and dissatisfaction with this life. Upon such grounds as these, the individual is to be encouraged to believe that God's purpose is to elect him rather than to reprobate him. If a person fears that he is of the non-elect, he should be assured rather that he is mistaken in this fear than that he is correct in it, because God has done more for him that tends to his salvation than to his perdition. 9. The atonement is to be offered to all men, because even those who shall prove in the day of judgment to be non-elect do yet receive benefits and blessings from it. Tarotin mentions the following benefits. a. The preaching of the gospel, whereby paganism with its idolatry, superstition and wretchedness is abolished. B. The extremes of human depravity are restrained. C. Many temporal blessings and gifts of providence are bestowed. Romans 2.4, Acts 14.7 D. Punishment is postponed and delayed. Acts 17.30, Romans 3.25 The grace of the Redeemer, says Bates, is so far universal that upon his account the indulgent providence of God invited the heathen to repentance. His renewed benefits that sweetened their lives... Romans 2.4, and his powerful patience in forbearing so long to cut them off, when their impurities were so provoking, was a testimony of his inclination to clemency upon their reformation, Acts 14.17. And for their abusing his favours and resisting the methods of his goodness, they will be inexcusable to themselves and their condemnation righteous to their own conscience. The reasons for the universal offer of the atonement thus far have had reference to God's relation to the offer. They go to show that the act upon his part is neither self-contradictory nor insincere. But there is another class of reasons that have reference to man's relation to the offer, and these we now proceed to mention. 1. The atonement is to be offered to every man because it is the duty of every man to trust in it. The atonement is in this particular like the decalogue. The moral law is to be preached to every man because it is every man's duty to obey it. The question whether every man will obey it has nothing to do with the universal proclamation of the law. It is a fact that the law will have been preached in vain to many persons, but this is no reason why it should not have been preached to them. They were under obligation to obey it, and this justified its proclamation to them. Still more than this, the moral law should be preached to every man, even though no man is able to keep it perfectly in his own strength. The slavery of the human will to sin is no reason why the primary and original duty which the human will owes to God should not be stated and enjoined, because this slavery has been produced by man, not by God. In like manner, faith in Christ's atonement should be required as a duty from every man, notwithstanding the fact that no man can come unto Christ except the Father draw him, John 6.44, that faith is not of ourselves but is the gift of God, Ephesians 2.8 and that Christ is the author and finisher of faith, Hebrews 12.2. Man's inability without the grace of God to penitentially trust in Christ's atonement, being self-caused like his inability to perfectly keep the moral law without the same grace, still leaves his duty in the case binding upon him. The purpose of God to bestow grace is not the measure of man's duty, neither is the power that man has as fallen the measure of man's duty, only the power that man had as unfallen and by creation is the measure of it. 2. The offer of Christ's atonement for sin should be universal because it is the most impressive mode of preaching the law. In exhibiting the nature of Christ's sacrifice and its sufficiency to atone for all sin, and especially in showing the necessity of it in order to the remission of any sin whatever, the spirituality and extent of the divine law are presented more powerfully than they can be in any other manner. The offer of the atonement is consequently a direct means of producing a sense of guilt and condemnation, without which faith in Christ is impossible. 3. The offer of the atonement to an unbeliever is adapted to disclose the aversion and obstinacy of his own will. This method of forgiving sin displeases him, it is humbling. If he were invited to make a personal atonement, this would fall in with his inclination, but to do no atoning work at all and simply to trust in the atoning work of another is the most unwelcome act that human pride can be summoned to perform. Belief in vicarious atonement is distasteful and repulsive to the natural man because he is a proud man, When, therefore, a man is informed that there is no forgiveness of sin but through Christ's atonement, that this atonement is ample for the forgiveness of every man, and that nothing but unbelief will prevent any man's forgiveness, his attention is immediately directed to his own disinclination to trust in this atonement and aversion to this method of forgiveness. But this experience is highly useful. It causes him to know his helplessness, even in respect to so fundamental an act as faith. The consequence is that he betakes himself to God in prayer that he may be inclined and enabled to believe. Larger Catechism 59 and 67. End of section 5.